The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought him near them, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, But you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this scripture, and I thank you for this opportunity this morning to delve deeply into it, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds, Lord, and I just pray that whatever truth you have waiting for us, that um, our hearts are, are softened and ready to receive it. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Janie. It's good to see all of you this morning, and uh, we're glad that you're here. We will be in Genesis chapter 48, and I do want to say happy Thanksgiving, and I know that uh, many of you are visiting, and because uh, you're here to visit family, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving with your family, or if you're just staying with your friends, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving with your friends. Some of you are spending Thanksgiving at Target. I don't know what to say about that, but... Uh, and the sad thing, you know, it's Black Friday where we, we buy all our gifts, and then Saturday is Small Business Saturday. We don't go to Target. You're supposed to go to some small business. And then Monday is Cyber Monday next week where you buy all your stuff online. And then Tuesday, you know what Tuesday is? Giving Tuesday. Yeah, if you have any money left to help anyone else, we put that last. That's the way the world works, isn't it? That is how it goes. Well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So I hope you have a really good Thanksgiving, and I hope my notes work this week. And if they don't, I got them all printed out, the <laughs> Pastor Scott Large Print Edition. All right. You know, as we think about Thanksgiving, 
There's a lot in the Bible about Thanksgiving. Psalm 105, it says, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. As you do give thanks this week, I want you to give thanks for the generations. Hopefully, you're having some time with family or people of different generations, different backgrounds at your table. Give thanks for their generation because the Lord is faithful to every generation. And give thanks. His love endures forever to all of the ridiculous, dysfunctional generations that we are. His love endures forever. And it turns out every generation needs a Savior. And it turns out that every generation comes to salvation the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that a little bit today in some generational talk at the end of Genesis as we study the story of Joseph. And really today is going to be a little bit more about Jacob or Israel, the end of his life. And we're going to give thanks for that. And we're going to talk about passing on our faith. Today at the end of the series, we're going to look a little bit at Joseph's dad, Jacob, or Israel, and the blessing that Joseph receives and his kids receive that's unexpected. And we're going to look at what is probably Jacob's deathbed conversation, the last thing that he decides to do, the last thing that he musters up the energy to be able to do. And you might not think it's a very important passage. Maybe you listen to uh, Janie read that, and you're thinking, what in the world are we going to talk about today in that passage? But actually, it's very important. In fact, it's incredibly important. The New Testament writer in the book of Hebrews, when that person looked back on Jacob's life and was looking back in chapter 11, the great faith chapter of 11, and writing about all the faith of these biblical characters, he said, what should I write about Jacob? Where was his faith? And what's interesting is he didn't choose to write about Jacob when he had Jacob's ladder and the dream and and he saw the presence of God going up and down and Jacob made that place into Bethel, the house of God, and just thought this was great. He didn't write about Jacob hearing from the Lord and the promises that Jacob got from the Lord. He didn't even write about the story of reconciliation and reunion that he had with his son Joseph that's been such a great part of our study here. No, instead the Hebrews writer writes about this in Genesis 48. It's at the end of his life that he writes about. In what might be the greatest chapter in faith in the Bible, the Hebrews writer recounts this event in Jacob's life right at the very end of it. Hebrews eleven twenty one. it says, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. It's interesting that in what's just about his final act, this is what gets noticed as a great marker of faith in Jacob's life. A great character like Joseph, in this particular part of it, the blessings of Joseph and Joseph's kids, passing on the promises of God to a new generation. Why is that? Why is that so important when you think about it? Well, here in our text today, we see Jacob, or Israel, trusting in God's promises completely. And as he does this, you notice that there is no deception, is that there was his own receiving, like there was where his own receiving of blessing, the deception that he had where he fooled his dad into giving him the blessing over his brother Israel. That's not here. Everything is out in the open. And there's also no sense of self-pity or doubt in God's promises in Jacob. Here he has complete confidence in God and what God's promises are. And he is faithful to what he knows God is calling him to do. He is faithful to God's promises, even though in his life he never saw those promises fulfilled in their totality. He never sees them, and yet he is still faithful to God. You see, in so many ways, when you study this passage in Jacob's life, you discover that this is actually his finest moment, that this is the moment he finishes well. He is faithful to God. You know, and his actions in the past are not always consistent with his faith, but here at the end, he has total confidence in God's plans for the future. 
total confidence that God's promises are real and that the promises given to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac and then to him will be kept by God through his family at a later date. He knows this to be true and it's made clear here. He finishes well. He passes on his faith to his son and his grandsons. You see, the reason the Hebrews writer writes this down is because this is what we're called to do also. He writes this down because it's a great act of faith to pass on your faith to the next generation, whether it be your kids or somebody you know, or even somebody in your generation who you know and you're passing on to them because they're going to pass it on to their kids or whoever. You see, this is what we are called to do. In the New Testament, we are called to make disciples. This is our ultimate mission to pass on our faith. This is faith in action. And the Hebrews writer is pointing this out, that Old Testament and new, to pass on our faith to the next generation until the last generation sees Jesus return, that's what we're supposed to do in faith, in faith that God's promises are real, in faith that everything God has promised will happen is going to happen and be fulfilled. And this is what he does. Question, are you passing on your faith to the next generation? or are you going to let your faith die with you? Are you passing on your faith to the next generation? Does this even cross your mind? Or are you hoping that somebody else does it? Are you hoping that through osmosis, the next generation just gets it through the church that hopefully they attend? In our passage today, we see Jacob there with his son Joseph meeting at the end of his life, Jacob's life. And we see a progression in the ceremony that happens here as he passes on his blessing to his son and then his grandkids. In the progression, he reflects on this past with the Lord, his present with the Lord, and his future of what he believes the Lord is going to continue to do. And this is how we should look at our life when we think about our life. How has God provided in the past? To remember that God is providing now in the present, even if we're not entirely sure what that is, and to have faith that he is going to provide in the future that this is what God is going to do. We should have no doubt about that. And we should have no doubt that God is with us just like he promised, even when we're not too sure about that. First thing I want to talk about is this, is that God was with you in your past. In verse 1, I'm going to back up a little bit from where we did the reading so we get some context here. It says, sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. Now, Joseph's sons at this point are about 20 years old, okay? They're not little babies. They've been around for a while, about 20. Okay, verse 2, when Jacob, or Israel, was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed, like you do. He's an old guy. He's getting ready to die. And sometimes at that last moment, we get enough strength to do the last thing that we really feel like we need to do. And this is what he does. He summons all of his strength. He knows he's about to die, and so he's going to make his final arrangement in this chapter and the next but look at what he thinks about in his last moments, what he thinks about in his life. Verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. It's interesting that he looks to his life and his past, and he starts to think about what God has done in the past in his life. This is what he's thinking about on his deathbed. And he remembers how God spoke to him at this place, Luz, which he later would call Bethel. He remembered the dream of his ladder, of God's presence going up and down, and the promises there. He remembers God's promises and how God protected him and brought him to this point where he gets to see his own descendants. And he begins to realize that God's promises are going to be kept, even if I don't get to see it. 
in total detail. And then he prepares to bless his grandsons by remembering his own blessings from God. Here's something that is key, is that Jacob, at this point, he sees, looks back at his life, and he sees his whole life defined by his relationship with God. Whether at some point in his life God was, he was pursuing God or whether he was running away from God or wrestling with God, he looks back at his whole life and he says, where was I in my relationship with God at this point in my life? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember this. And there's good times and there's bad times. This is how we are to look at our past in our life. How many of you have a past? What was your relationship to God like back then in your past? Maybe before you even knew him, for a lot of you. What was your relationship to God? Or what about your present? What's your relationship with God like right now? Maybe you don't know him right now, so you're not too sure. What was it like in the past? And what's it like now? And what would you like it to be like in the future? What do you hope happens in your spiritual growth? What do you hope that your relationship with God becomes as you move forward. See, when we look at our life through the context of our relationship with God, it changes how we look at it. It changes how we look at the events, the happy times and the sad times, the tragedies and the victories. It changes our perspective of those things. And the way it changes is this, we see them through the right lens. We see them the way God sees them. Because what's important about our lives, our past, present, and future is our relationship with the living God who made us, who wants us to be in relationship with Him. You see, our lives are actually about our relationship with God, and it's a filter for understanding everything about our lives. In verse 5, we see that what's happening here is more than a blessing, but there's also an adoption that's happening here. It's so interesting. Verse 5, now then your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you will be reckoned as mine, Jacob says. I'm going to treat my grandkids like they're mine. I'm adopting them into my family, he says. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon, your brothers, are mine. And any children born to you after them will be yours, and the territory that they inherit will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. He does something really interesting here. He adopts Joseph's sons as his own and blesses them the way he would his own sons. In a sense, they get this extra portion of blessing in Joseph's family. In verse 7, 7 seems a little bit out of place, but he's still recalling his walk with God and the different points in his life. In verse 7, he says, As I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan where, while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. You'll be hearing more about Bethlehem next month. And a place that God has always been interested in, a place that is rooted in history in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in God's people long before the birth of Christ. It's an important place. Something in this moment, probably seeing his grandkids, reminded him of his wife, Rachel. And he shares this. He shares his sorrow, his sorrow of whatever tragedy happened there. And he recognizes that, you know what, this was part of my life with God. The story of Rachel, her sister Leah and all that, it's a big, complicated part of his life. And he remembers this. And he realizes all of this has been part of God's plan through him. Verse 8, when Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? It's kind of a funny thing to ask when you do know who they are. Who are these? And uh, some people say, well, it's because his eyesight is dimming and it's hard to see. But actually, we haven't learned that in this passage yet. 
and that comes in the next couple of verses. But most commentators think that what's happening here is a ceremony, something that has been planned out, that this is how the blessing is bestowed upon the next generation. Who are these? It's kind of like in a wedding. You go to a wedding, and uh, the bride and usually her father or whoever's walking her down the aisle comes forward. My sister got married a few weeks ago. I got to walk her down the aisle because my dad's a pastor. He did the wedding, and uh, so it's hard for him to do both. It's kind of weird. And uh, I got to answer that question, who gives this woman to be married? And it's sort of like, Dad, you don't know who I am? Maybe you shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and I feel awkward when I ask that question at a wedding, who gives this woman to be married? And usually it's her mother and I or her family and I, some statement. It's all part of ceremony. It's why you do that. That's what's going on here. Obviously, Jacob knows who these kids are, but it's part of the ceremony that's about to happen. Verse 9, they are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age. He could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. He was blessed by seeing Joseph's sons, thankful for the reconciliation with Joseph and the reunion of that relationship that he thought he had lost, and now he gets to see his grandkids. Those of you who are grandparents, you know how it changes your life. You don't expect it the same way. You kind of expect that kids are going to change your life when you have kids the first time, if you have uh, that blessing in your life. You don't really understand how, like you used to think you could watch movies, you're never going to watch a movie again that you like when you have kids. (laughs) All kinds of things happen. But something else happens when you have grandkids. It's a whole different life change. And for many of you who are going to experience that, you wait. It's the greatest thing. When my parents became grandkids, when my sister told my dad about her baby, she had a first marriage a long time ago, and uh, tears literally shot out of his eyes. I remember seeing this, tears of joy. He did not expect that. It's a great deal to see your grandkids. Proverbs says that uh, becoming a grandparent is the crown of the aged It's a good deal. And then he looks at these boys and he's anticipating the blessing of God that was promised him and his family that will be taken through these kids. I want you to note something here for a moment. He's about to die. These are the things that he's thinking about on his deathbed. I looked up uh, what some nurse wrote about top deathbed confessions, what people talk about while they're about to die. These are the normal things. People talk about wishes and regrets. I wish that I had the courage to live true to myself, people will say. I wish that I had not worked so hard. That's a big one, isn't it, for a lot of us. We look back and wish, gosh, you know, I wish I'd taken a day off. I wish that I had the courage to express my feelings. I wish that I had stayed in touch with friends. I wish that I had let myself be happier. See, these are the things that people tend to talk about at the end of their life. And people, you know, sometimes people on their deathbed, they think about strange things. Sometimes people's final words get recorded, and people have strange regrets. You know the actor Humphrey Bogart, Casablanca guy, right? This was his last words. It's very famous. He died of esophageal cancer, okay? He said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. It's the last thing out of his mouth. He's thinking to himself, maybe I wouldn't have this if I had a different drink. Okay. See, all those things are kind of self-absorbed, really. It's kind of what we wish we had accomplished or different things. Jacob is doing something else here. Jacob's thoughts at the end of his life begin and end with God and God's plans through his life. 
And he looks at his life through that whole filter, past, present, and future. In verse 3, he's remembering that God appeared. By verse 11, he's thanking God. And he doesn't wallow in his past sins or lost opportunities. He's not sharing regrets. He doesn't feel the need to make peace with God about old stuff because he's at peace with God. Because he truly believes in God's promises for the future. And instead, he takes time to share about the one thing that matters, that he reflects on God's presence with him, and then he acts in faith that God's blessing needs to be passed on to the next generation, that that's the last thing on his mind, that he acts in faith to pass on the blessing to the next generation. He's still on mission, even though he only has a little bit of time left. Sometimes we ask people questions when they're dying because we get curious. What kinds of questions do we ask? We usually don't ask, what is your comfort and joy? Where is your hope? We ask things like, uh, what do you wish you had done differently in your life? Why? And we take notes because we're looking for some kind of secret, some kind of secret to our life so that I'm, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not saying the same things you are. What can I learn? The secret of my own satisfaction. And it's such a shame that we think about temporary things when eternity hangs in the balance. This is one of the struggles that people have even in the church that sometimes we think about temporary things when salvation is in the balance, when people's eternal destiny is in the balance. Sometimes we get completely absorbed with our own comfort in our life or in our church and ways of doing things, and we make those things more important than passing on the gospel. This has always been a struggle with God's people. One writer said this about the church, that sometimes we put secondary concerns first, and then we focus on a set of fears about those concerns about the next or previous generation And then we bomb that boogeyman, whatever it is, until there's nothing left except rubble. And then we spend the rest of our spiritual life bombing that rubble. And we get so distracted by secondary things when we forget that eternity is in the balance, that we are called to make disciples of Jesus. Why? So they can make some good teachings, love your enemy, that's nice. No, it's because there is an eternal destination for every human being. And we are called to let people know that the gift of grace and everlasting life is free, a free gift to you wherever you live, wherever you're from, whatever language you speak, whether you're rich or poor. This is our calling. The most important thing that we are to leave with our kids or the next generation is the knowledge of God and the gospel of Jesus. And we should do everything we can to make sure that we are doing that and not hindered by secondary things. Lots of times we leave all kinds of examples to our kids, an example of a healthy lifestyle. I've heard some people do that. Good business practices, financial wisdom, a good education. You know what, that's all fine. But it isn't where we should focus so much time with our kids. We need to give time and attention to the spiritual lives of others. This is where our focus and attention is because what good is it to have good business practices if you don't get to go to heaven? What good is it to have a healthy lifestyle so you live a lousy five years longer eating kale? (laughs) If you don't know the Lord. How much effort do we give to raising our kids in the nurture of the Lord, of modeling our faith to them, our own kids and the other kids who come to church and they look at church people as the example? Are we passing along our faith to others so that our kids or other people notice what our priorities are? And I don't just mean children when I say kids, I mean our adult kids. 
Talk to anybody in here who's 90 years old who's got adult kids and they're still worried about their 70-year-old kids. They are. They're worried the same way as they were when their kids were 50, 30, 20, two years old. I mean, I talked to a guy one time here who was so worried about his kid, and I said, your son is retired. (laughs) I know, but, you know, he's worried about whether he's saving enough money for, you know. Okay, that's what we do as parents. We worry about these things. It never ends. And so often in our life, we get overwhelmed by life or we get fatigued from work or illness. But here's the thing. Whatever our situation is, however tired we are, however frustrated we are, however close to death we are, it is totally worth gathering up the strength to pass on our faith and glorify God through it, just like Jacob does here at the end. Wherever you find yourself, it is completely worth that strength, no matter how tired you are, how burnt out you are, how sick you are, to do that. This is an act of great faith. It means that you believe in God's promises. It means that you truly believe that this whole stuff is true, that Jesus died and rose again for a reason, that it really matters, that this isn't just religion, and we come together and we sing some songs and we have a potluck later, and that's fun, that there's something truly that matters in what we've been given, and therefore we should pass it on. As he moves forward, we're reminded that God is also present in our present. Present is kind of a weird time. It's now, now, now. Remember when I made that remark about Target? That's in the past. It's already over. This is now, now, the present. And he does something here. It's kind of like an invocation. It's the next part of the ceremony where we remember that God is present in our presence, or present, has presence in our present time, and that the promises of the future are true now as they were in the past, and we are in the present kind of looking to the future. An invocation, sometimes you'll see a a pastor or somebody pray before a, a business meeting or a city council meeting. We do that. I get asked to go down to the city council or the county and give an invocation, and I pray before the meetings. And I'm surprised they still let me do that once in a while. The county seems to like having me. I'm like their backup guy because I can run down there and do it. One time, the, you know, they don't really want you to say Jesus or be real specific. Well, one time I was at the city council in San Diego. It was a few years ago. And there was always political tension. But one year, nobody on that council even liked each other, and it was plain into the room. I mean, the, the tension was so thick you could whack it with a broom. And I decided I'm going to pray through the whole agenda. And I did. I prayed through the whole agenda, every single thing on the line there. And then I said, in Jesus' name, and they've never invited me back to that one. That's why I go to the county. <laughs> but you know what I was doing as I was inviting Jesus there? Inviting, he's already there, but bringing attention that, hey, there's something greater than ourselves that this is about. This is what an invocation does. It reminds us, ultimately, that God is present in our present circumstances, that God is here. And this is what he does. And he's inviting God into the lives of Joseph's kids and and passing along the promises of God. Verse 12, then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. Joseph's kids are 20 years old sitting on Jacob's knees. That must have hurt. Then Joseph bows to the ground. Ceremonial. It's how this goes. It's why he's sitting on the knees. You see that in other places in Scripture. It's something that you do. Verse 13, And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. 
But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. This is a deliberate maneuver by Jacob. Would have been much easier to do this. That's what you're supposed to do. Instead, he does this. He changes it. Why does he do that? Verse 15, then he blessed Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they increase greatly on the earth. He invites God into their lives and invites the blessing of God into their lives so that they would have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be blessed in the same way. Let me ask you, do you pray for the kids in the next generation, not just your own kids, maybe you don't have kids, do you pray for them? And I don't mean just the children, the 20-year-olds, the 40-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, the 70-year-olds, the 90-year-olds. There are 90-year-olds whose parents still alive somewhere. You pray for them, that they would understand the promises of God and take it to the next generation? Let me tell you something, don't stop praying for your kids even if they're older. Do not do that. You pray that they, your kids, whatever age, would have the faith in God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I pray that specifically. You know, and Jacob wasn't always the most faithful, but he came around, and your kids can too. But I don't have kids. Do you pray for the next generation? Everybody in here, there's a next generation. Did you know that? There is a generation below you that's coming up, and they're going to be different than you. It's all kinds of this weird tension between generations. If you watch this, if you're, I guess, you know, now it's the millennials fighting against the boomers. All right, the millennials, you know, the snowflakes, and, you know, and then the boomers. Okay, boomer, that's the new thing. I'm Gen X. We're just in the audience like a tennis match, <laughs> watching the insults fly, wondering when we're going to get ours, except that we won't care. That'll be the, the glory of it. But you know what? This should not be in the church because the church is the family of God. The bride of Christ is everybody who is in the church now, our kids and our old people and everybody in between. It's not the church of the past or the church of the future. It's the church right now. This is who we are. And we need to be different than the culture. We need to find a way to work it out so that all the differences that we have between generations of how to do things and that's in the past or that's in the future, this is the new way, we got to find a way to work it out and be focused on the gospel lest that we spend a whole bunch of time bombing the rubble of what one generation likes over the other. And then we get to the end of our life and wonder why we never passed on our faith. We need to pray for each generation. And we need to be praying for this next generation. They're growing up in a nation that they will be the church for the first time in a nation that for the first time sees them as less favorable for the first time does not accept what they believe, for the first time that even major political candidates are saying if they believe that, they lose. And hardly anybody speaks up against it. It's a different time. It's not a bad time. The church tends to grow in, it, in places where the church is persecuted and illegal. It's a great time in God's plan. Don't worry about it. But our prayers should be heavy for this. Do it. There's something else that happens here in verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it to Ephraim's head, or move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Because remember, Jacob was doing one of these. And Joseph said to him, No, my father, this is one of the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head, as if Jacob didn't understand what he's doing. 
You see, the larger blessing, the blessing of the right hand in the ceremony was supposed to go to the firstborn. That's the way that would normally go. But if you read the story, you begin to realize that this isn't the way God does it with his family, that God doesn't seem to want to follow those rules. There's a great irony here. Verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, the younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name, Israel will pronounce the blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. He reversed it. And it's so interesting because when Jacob was before his dad and almost blind Isaac and receiving the blessing that was intended for his brother Esau that he was receiving through deception, although it was still God's plan, this is something here that is different. Here he knowingly blesses his grandsons in the same way except that there's no deception. He does it on purpose because he recognizes this is God's plan and I can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to trust God with his plan and not mine. Interestingly, this is the fourth generation in a row where the younger is blessed over the older. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, Ephraim over Manasseh. Joseph is Jacob's firstborn by Rachel, and he replaces the firstborn Reuben, who is by Leah, if you know the story. If you want to find out why, it's in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2. We won't go there today, but there is a why. You see, God always has a way of working things out according to his own glory and according to his own plan, and God is going to take care of his people and move them forward according to his plan. And the thing is, is it's not usually our way. It's so often different than what we had plans or what we thought. And each generation is different. Each generation for a while thinks they've figured it out, and then God changes it for the next generation. How do generations fail in the Bible? They fail when they do not successfully pass on their faith. In the Old Testament, you read often that the next generation didn't know the Lord or His deeds. And that's the continual problem of the people of Israel. They, the parents got comfortable in their ways or they took on some ways of the world. They just kind of liked things themselves and they started looking inward and they just didn't pass it on to their kids. And the kids probably went to school and they learned the, the Torah and they learned those different things, but they didn't get, into, didn't get into the marrow of their life. It just was religion. And this becomes the failure when we pass on our faith like it's just some kind of religion, some kind of cultural thing we do because we're Americans or whatever, because it's what we do. You see, passing on our faith, the full gospel of Jesus is what we're called to be doing in the present. We finish well at the end of our lives when our hope in the Lord and His gospel has been passed on. When we can look back and go, God used me to pass on this gospel, this truth, that we're saved by faith, by God's grace. See, when we get to our old age or on our deathbed and we're talking about something else, we've missed it, or even our younger times. The truth is, is some of us might be on our deathbed today. You have no idea what's going to happen. hate to bring that up. But if you look at your past, you look at your present, are you passing along your faith? What's your relationship like with God right now? What was it like in the past? What would you like it to be in the future? Every life that is lived for self will be filled with regret in the end. But lives lived for God don't have regret because it's not about us. It's not about what I accomplished or what vacations I got to take or how much money I made or what my education was. It's about that I receive the blessing 
of the grace of God through Jesus Christ and everlasting life and the inheritance that I'm gonna get and did I pass that on to somebody else? We finish well when the answer to that is yes. You see, our testimony in our life should be that I have decreased so that God can increase. This is the testimony of who we are to be as followers of Jesus. Jacob is aware of what matters in his final days, and he passes on his faith to his kids and his grandkids. And you don't have to wait until you're dying. You know that song? It's an old song now by Tim McGraw, Live Like You Are Dying. We could probably all sing it. We won't. But he learns that he's going to die, and so it changes his life. And he says, what'd you do? Well, I went skydiving, and I went Rocky Mountain climbing, and I spent 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. This is what he does. Eventually in the song, he reads the good book, but then he goes skydiving again. Kind of gets around to reading the Bible. Oh, that's nice. You see, that's actually not how you live like you're dying. That's how you live for yourself if you happen to be dying. The way you live like you're dying, if you intend to die without regret, if you intend to have a fulfilled life, then you live for Jesus right now. And you live your life so that you are passing along this faith, this gospel that you've been given to the next generation. And when you've done that, you're living like you're dying because you are, except that when you die in Christ, you don't really die. You just get a new and better address a better zip code. They probably don't have the postal service in heaven, come to think of it. How could they? It's no sin. Don't write me if you're a mailman. I'm just making a (laughs) post office joke. I had to buy stamps this week, a whole bunch of stamps. They're expensive. It's like 50 cents or 55 cents. I think it's 10 or 15 cents to mail it and 40 cents for storage. They've got to keep it somewhere for all those days. <laughs> when you live like you're dying and you want to die without regret, you follow Jesus each and every day. You pass on your faith. And then looking forward to the future, and God's promises. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, I give one more ridge of land to your brothers, the ridge that I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. That's probably a cool story. Read your Bible. Great stories. But what's happening here is he recognizes that in the future there is a blessing in God's people and he's known that God is with Joseph and we've learned that through this series that God has been with Joseph and he knows that God will still be with Joseph and he tells his son that God is with you and he will still be with you in the future and his promises will be kept. He recognizes the presence of God. It's a theme of his life and he passes it on. You see, God isn't going anywhere in the future. Things change. Things change for God's people. And he calls us to do church in different ways, in different forms, and that's going to happen. Every generation changes it. The government changes it. There's all kinds of change that happens. History changes it. But God and his gospel remains the same, and our mission and purpose never changes. There's a lot of things that we can apply to our life here. First one is this. Today, would you acknowledge in every part of your life, past, present, and future, that God is there and become aware of what your relationship was like in the past. What was it like? You start to look at your experiences, the good and the bad, through the lens of God. 
One of the things that you start to realize is that he was always there even when you think he wasn't. And then where is God with you right now? Do you need to draw closer to him? Today's a good day to start. Don't leave today. If God is stirring in your heart and saying, gosh, I need to make some changes, pray with somebody. Stay in here and pray and make this commitment to God. You see, your actual story is God's role in your life. And if you're wondering about the future, have a better relationship with God and do His will. Then you don't have to worry about the future. His promises are real. Secondly, recognize that the most important thing you can pass on before you die is the knowledge of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a myth that people get saved by osmosis, that our children will somehow catch Jesus by spiritual osmosis because they're around parents or they're around church. And let's be honest, as parents or just as church people, our children don't always see our best side. They don't. And they're looking at us and we come to church and we smile and we sing the songs and usually we speak nicely to other people. And then we get in the car and we cuss out our kids and we cuss out the neighbor for his politics. We write something on nextdoor.com that's ridiculous. And our kids are reading that going, man, my dad's a jerk. I'm not sure if I really like this Christianity stuff. No, we need to recognize we're not perfect. We can repent and we can tell our kids why we're repenting. Hey, when dad did that, uh, Johnny, he shouldn't have. He sinned. But Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know I have forgiveness, but I want you to understand that I'm a sinner and I shouldn't have done that and I'm sorry. It's a great discipline because that's the gospel, passing it on, that we're not perfect, that we can't earn our own salvation, that nobody can, that we get it by grace. It's a myth that passing on the faith is the job of professionals, that's the job of the church. I just got to get people to church and, you know, maybe they'll hear about Jesus. It's not. It's all of our jobs. Most of the world doesn't even get to do what we're doing right now. Not the same way. Most people who have received Christ in their life, you know how that happened? They heard it from a grandparent. They heard it from a parent. They heard it from a brother or a sister. They heard it from a friend. Most of the time, the first time they heard about Jesus wasn't because they went to church or because they went to some Billy Graham crusade or something. They might have gone to church because they were invited to church by their parents or forced to go. They might have gone to the Billy Graham crusade because somebody invited them and went with them and walked down on the field with them and said the prayers with them. But they're there because of relationship. If you're a believer in here, I want you to raise your hand if you know Jesus because somebody told you about Jesus, a parent, a grandparent, a friend, somebody in your life. Raise your hand real high, really high. Look around. That's almost everybody who's a believer. It almost never happens some other way. It's relational. It's the heart of discipleship. It's the heart of what we are called to do and be. It's the people in our relational world that matter. And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, maybe it's not worth the effort. Sometimes we get discouraged that somebody we know will never find Christ. A parent, a kid, a grandparent, just some friend that we know who we think to ourselves, that person is so lost, they will never come to Jesus. Have you ever had that kind of discouragement, Christian? Man, if you've had that kind of discouragement, let me tell you something. This past month, Kanye West has shared the gospel with more people than probably anyone else on the planet. Would you have said that two or three months ago? 
You have no idea how God wants to use you or anybody else. I listened to his entire album, and it changed my Spotify recommended listening (laughs) quite a bit. But I tell you what, I was blessed by it. You never know. Do not give up. Do not give up on your kids. Do not give up on your parents or your grandparents or your cousins or Uncle Fred that you're going to sit around the table with Thanksgiving just waiting for him to go home finally. Jesus loves them, and you have no idea that Uncle Fred might be the next Billy Graham. You have no idea what God wants to do because you decided to share your faith. Do it. And keep this in mind, when we make, thirdly, secondary matters primary, we miss the blessings that God wants to give us, and we have regret. So keep the main thing the main thing. Christians regret when we don't keep the main thing the main thing. When our Christian life becomes about planting a flag in secondary doctrine or something, like when we have a definite opinion about when Jesus will return, and we can tell you all the different pre, pros, trib, millennial, this and that, and we can argue and fight for it, and then somebody says, well, when did, why did Jesus come the first time? And we can barely even say it. We got to understand why Jesus came the first time and explain that. That's primary. Yes, he's going to come again. That's the hope. We need to understand that. But we got to know why he came the first time. That's the message that people need to understand. Because if they don't get it when he comes the second time, it's too late. This is what we need to be about. The blessing that we read about today, so interesting because it did not follow the lines of natural descent or natural right. The blessing was a gift bestowed upon those who cannot claim it as their right. I think that's why God mixes this up. Because when we start to get entitled or we think we have rights to this and that, God says, no, you don't. You get salvation and the inheritance by grace because I offered it. You see, we didn't deserve it. While we were were saved through Christ because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans tells us. We didn't deserve it. We were loved. And each generation is loved. And everyone comes to salvation the same way, by faith in Christ. Every generation. And the thing is, is it's not just a blessing, it's an adoption. That you aren't just getting eternal life and the blessings of God. You are getting adopted into his family. Into the people of God. Into the body of Christ. Into the bride of Christ, which we are. There's a lot of reasons that we can criticize the church, but stop it, it's Jesus' wife. I don't like it when people criticize my wife. I think Jesus probably doesn't like it either. Lift each other up. Build each other up. Speak kindly to one another. Bless each other. Pray for each other. This is what the church should do because we should be different. We shouldn't ever be generations going at it or dividing over generation or that, this generation or that generation or this kind of generation, or that kind of, or this kind of music, or that kind of music, or this way of doing church, or that way of doing church, or PC, or Mac, whatever. <laughs> there are so many reasons we can divide. But when Jesus prayed for unity in the church, he prayed that we would be focused on the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because this is what we are called to do. We do not have time to mess around with the rest of it. And this is what we get to pass on, the blessing of God's grace through Christ, the promise of eternal life for all who believe and becoming part of God's family. It's a great inheritance. So keep the main thing the main thing and do not get distracted and live like you're dying 
and make every opportunity to pass on your faith. Our culture, the world, it divides over everything. Let's let the church be something different. You know what we're trying to do here, bringing two churches together? It's so hard to do that. It's a reason there's a million different churches out there. It's a bunch of reasons. There's a million reasons. But the reason that we should be unified, the reason that this is such a great opportunity is because the world will see that there is something worth being unified about. And it's salvation through Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that needs to be passed on from generation to generation. So church, are you passing along your faith or is it gonna pass away with you? Don't let that happen. Think on that this week and especially as you gather with friends and family, think about what God is doing in your past, what he's doing right now in the present and what he wants to do with you in the future and pass along your faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for this great story, these amazing stories. We didn't even get to so many details that are amazing about this chapter. God, we thank you for the blessing of faith that we have seen in the life of Jacob and Joseph. And I pray that each person here would recognize that the purpose of our life is your purposes, that we would look at our life through the lens of your presence with us, your presence in our past, your presence now, and that you want to be with us forever. I pray that we would grasp that and that each one of us would make this our primary goal. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us, and we give thanks to you for your mercy and for your love from generation to generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.